You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and our chief investment officer at our firm. I usually call him Dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. We also have, hosting this alongside of us, standing here out in front of us, uh, well, we can't see them, but they can see us, is the attendees of the Smead Investor Oasis, which we give a round of applause. So I'm pretty excited for this, as I know Bill is. Uh, We're going to think and discuss about a period of time where government spending was big, societal disorder was common, and inflation was an assumption. Amity Schlaes is joining us to talk about her newest book, Great Society. Amity has published four of the books, but the ones I want to mention are The Greedy Hand, Coolidge, and The Forgotten Man, which we actually discussed in season one of the podcast, was a real treat. She is the chair of the Calvin Coolidge Foundation. Amity also chairs the Hayek Prize from the Manhattan Institute. She is also a presidential scholar at the King's College in New York. Before we introduce Amity, Bill, is there anything that you're looking forward to from Great Society? Just love digging into the 60s and 70s, and that means we're going to cover territory for people that weren't around then. Like myself. Amity, really glad to have you. This book was just so much fun. Like Bill said, we've studied the 60s a lot. We think it's a very apropos period. Really great to have you today. Honored to be here. So let's start with the simplest of all questions. Tell us what inspired you to write The Great Society. My dad, no question, because all of us have parents or grandparents who lived through this period, and it was particularly tough on entrepreneurs, anyone creative. So at the same time that there was inflation, there was a shortage of capital for many people. So if you had an idea, it it wasn't obvious you'd find the funds to attempt to execute it. And also, if you, if you planned a business project, you had to think about what the feds would think about that and whether there was federal funding for what you did or whether those who funded others' projects would try in court to stop your project. That happened a lot. So it was a, a, a very difficult time for creators. Mm. So you start your story off with probably one of my favorite characters from the book, Ralph Cordner. He's probably Bill and my favorite protagonist early in the book because he's also a, a Whitman College alumni, which I know there's at least one, a couple other here today. Cordner Hall is still, still there today in honor of Ralph Cordner at our college. Explain what Cordner saw with the government coming out of World War II. Cordner gave Ronald Reagan a megaphone as an example in your book. And explain what Reagan's relationship was with, with Cordner and GE. Well, you know, because you're in business, that companies have souls. They're, they're not just numbers, <laughs> they have souls. And GE, this important American company that, that's part of our soul, GE's own soul was divided in two. It was a fight, it was riven. And there were the newer leaders at GE who wanted to go along, get along with the government, and that made sense because GE had a lot of contracts with the government. This was the era of the military-industrial complex. But Cordner wanted a freer general electric because he knew that uh, you leave people alone in a lab, they might have an idea. Remember, this is the company of Steinmetz and Edison. They might have an idea. So he, he was worried about America, as Ike was, President Eisenhower, that we'd all become part of the military-industrial complex and write software, I don't know, for security, sort of like now. And he was particularly worried about labor unions who were making it too expensive for, for GE and for other companies it worked with. So he, he decided to hire an actor to talk about the free market and the origins of America, and he picked a, a down-on-his-luck actor 
an actor who had been divorced, which then was was a problem in terms of reputation, and who was non-young, and that was a guy named Reagan, and he hired Reagan to go around and speak to GE employees all across America at rubber chicken dinners about what, what markets had given America and what they could give us in future. This was a godsend to the Reagans, Ronald and his new wife, Nancy, because uh, they weren't getting as many acting gigs as they once had, and now they, got, they became sort of the show pony of GE. Their, their house was rigged up with GE kitchen, GE, you know, GE everywhere, GE outlets, GE generator probably, uh, and uh, Reagan didn't mind all. He's a theatrical person, and the reason it matters is he, gave him, he started to give speeches for GE, and first they were about actors and so on and freedom, but then very specifically, after a while, he be, Reagan began to address individual topics. What is a minimum wage? What, what is national health care? So it was sort of Reagan's graduate school, General Electric. Nice. Um, so JFK was advised by John Kenneth Galbraith in comparison. We're big fans of John Kenneth Galbraith because his book, A Short History of Financial Euphoria, is an excellent book. Um, we have tons of copies at the office if you want one here in the audience. And I just say that because they really built this world of like haves and have-nots versus you know everyone being at a different part in their life and kind of being a blend of society. Do you look at that as being the kind of the psychology that drove much of the 60s, that idea of have and have-nots? Well, certainly, um, the one can learn something from it from many authors. You know, you don't want to divide your life and say, oh, I only read these authors. I want to read all around. And Galbraith is someone we all love to read. In the 60s, imagine you're doing a problem because, you know, we're analytic people. So you say, what are the givens in this situation? It was given American prosperity. Given prosperity, what will we do? And so once you have the given of prosperity, then you really pretty quickly commence dividing up the prosperity because you take the prosperity as a given. So that's, that's what Galbraith was doing when he, he talked about the affluent society. And that was the 60s. It, this book commences with the story of Bonanza, the television Western. And what I try to point out, well, Bonanza had some differences from prior Westerns. Uh, one was that it was in color. Uh, that was a new thing on GETVs. But two was, it was really about how do you spend your money, wealth management as a society, rather than how do you make your money, or how do you make your community using your, the, the bonanza of what God has given you or what the economy has given you. Very different attitude to how do you make it and even survive, which would be a depression era Western, mm. or a Life is so tough, survival is all uh, we ask. Uh, Bonanza was, given coal and wealth, what do we do next? And that's the 60s. Coal reminded me it's Ronald Reagan's birthday. Yeah, just very random, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw Al Stewart in concert at Cordner Hall in 1977 with my college roommate, Bill Way, who's here in the audience. So, so Reagan is 112? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, he I'm was glad you know that. Just trying to, we were trying <laughs> remember, to figure. Remember his great line in the second debate. He said, "He said you're not going to use the youth of my my opponent a, a, as a negative for him, yeah. right?" So uh, Walter Ruther was the face of the United Auto Workers. He had many socialist bents to him, but considered communism evil and un-American. Did he really consider it un-American or just palatable for the electorate? Uh, probably un-American, but. Um, let me just say his name first, Walter Ruther, because it's not a name you hear anymore. Who's that? It's spelled kind of strange, sort of like Reuters, R-E-U-T-H-E-R. -E -E it's a German name. It's not heard nowadays. It was on the news every night in the 1960s. It would go Vietnam, da-da-da, casualties. Walter Ruther said... Walter Ruther was the head of the United Auto Workers, which is not the biggest union, but it was sort of the knife uh, at the tip of the, it was the bayonet point at the tip of the union weapon. Uh, he was the spokesman for the UAW, the auto workers. He was also the leader of the CIO, AFL-CIO. And Ruther wanted America 
to be a social democracy. First, he wanted union workers to live in a social democracy. He accomplished that. He was a very gifted leader, probably the most charismatic fellow in, in Book Great Society, because this is sort of his story. So he made US workers have all the benefits uh, they ought to get, of course, uh, in the 50s. And then he decided to up the game and make all America um, move into the middle class. Nothing wrong with that, except that he didn't, the unions didn't, and the automakers didn't have an awareness of international competition. So it's the same story as in the UK or Germany. We overpaid our workers. Of course, we love them. We overpaid them. Someone else made the cars. And there was a second point I want to make about Ruther, because it was really the most, uh, the area I discovered the most in researching great society. We The union game where, uh, uh, let's see, something electric breaks, you have to halt the line and wait for the union man from the electric, you know, the electrician's union instead of the UAW to come fix it because that's the rule. It's sort of a theater, right? We all observe everything about unions. That was too expensive, and it caused a lot of antagonism uh, on the assembly line. And workers weren't actually asked questions about that. They just played the union game and got paid well for a very dreary job. Assembly line work was horrible. And you had a different model in Japan. We think of Japan as a hierarchical place, but if you look at the work of like Michael Kuzumano and others, and, and if you look at lean theory, uh, you'll see that in Japan, a worker could stop the assembly line and say, let's do it a different way. Maybe I know a better way to make this widget part of the car. The, the, the U.S. did not have that because we ceded a lot of authority to union culture, the worker. Well, and, and that didn't show up in the marketplace in full power until the Arab oil embargo in 73, 74, and all of a sudden, these less expensive workers making energy-efficient automobiles ended up being what has created Toyota, Lexus, Nissan, and that whole thing to be a big thing. Let's go to George Romney. He, he pitched a profit-sharing structure to the MC workers. Tell us a little bit about that. He, he, well, Ro George Romney is the father of, uh, and they're kind of alike. Um, but the reason we're sticking with autos is the auto economy, was, this was the manufacturing economy we're talking about, right? It was different to our economy. The auto economy it was the... Uh, was the American economy, and it was the future of the American economy. Detroit was a city with the highest median middle class, if you can imagine, including for African Americans at that time. Mm. Workers in Detroit had houses. So Romney had a couple of innovations. He was at, let's see, uh, American AMC. One. AMC, yep. right, AMC. And one was a smaller car, the Rambler. It wasn't small enough, but My anyway. My grandparents had one. A Rambler. <laughs> uh, and another was some kind of worker profit sharing which was not a bad idea. Ruther had a similar idea, employee, uh, and you can go back on YouTube and see Walter Ruther, R-E-U-T-H-E-R, pitching something rather market-y for workers. Too bad he didn't get very far um, because that's what was needed. Workers needed a share in the outcome so they, and to cease to be infantilized, which they were by the standard union process. So all kinds of people, there's no one you can vilify in history. Everyone has a contribution. And Romney saw that workers needed more than a good paycheck and an extra hour or two off and a great union hospital, which they had, automaker union hospital. There were fine hospitals then. And, and today when you, um, you say, you know, you watch Michael Moore and you learn about the tragedy of Flint and the water, it's not what killed Detroit? What made the power belt the rust belt? It was sadly that we charged too much for cars and paid our workers more than we could afford. Mm -hmm. So they went away. We killed, we murdered our own industrial center by not acknowledging to ourselves certain things that we couldn't afford. Yeah. Uh, Johnson kicked off his Great Society speech at the University of Michigan, ironically, isn't that where Romney was also, uh, in 1964, June. Uh, uh, he, he, he wanted to be a bold Texan. We got a few bold Texans in the audience today, and we're thrilled about that. Uh, so 
Uh, and he knew that, that this was kind of an error that the Kennedy was making because Kennedy had this weird thing. His dad was the ultimate capitalist bootlegging alcohol from Canada and arbitraging it in the United States. So he had this funny dichotomy. So tell us a little bit about the dynamic and, and, and how Johnson was differentiating himself with that speech. From JFK. Yes. Right. So you recall, John F. Kennedy was president. Alas, he was assassinated, and the vice president, Johnson, becomes president. Johnson is very intimidated by the Kennedy style and the Kennedy power. Who is Kennedy anyway? Who is his brother, who's attorney general, this twerp, right? Who, who are these people? Uh, and he's on a good day, uh, he, he, to honor Kennedy, he builds out on what Kennedy had committed, for uh, committed to do but hadn't been able to achieve. For example, there, Kennedy sought tax cuts. Congress wouldn't go along. Johnson, the master of the Senate, when he becomes president, passes those tax cuts, which, by the way, were good for our economy, the Kennedy-Johnson tax cuts. He swears he's going to execute on what Kennedy promised, get to the moon. But he also has his own um, ambition to go farther than Kennedy, to be to out Kennedy, Kennedy. And that's really what the Great Society speech, which is where he announced the idea. We're not, he didn't say we're going to have a good society, right? He said we're going to have a great society. Great is a very dangerous adjective. Um, we're going to have a great society. Uh, announced it at Michigan. Um, and he said, look to himself and to his colleagues, I'm going farther than Kennedy. I'm going to achieve more. And of course, the distinction between them, which gave him, in terms of legislation, a huge advantage, was that, again, Johnson was the master of the Senate. They said Johnson got laws through the way other men eat chocolate chip cookies. And that's great, but it's not a, the. It can't be the only metric. Inputs cannot be the only metric. You need the outcomes, and he wasn't so concerned about this, yeah. President Johnson. <laughs> so um, the other thing that I love in your book, uh, California used to be a lot more sensible, is what I learned in your book. I didn't know that in my lifetime, by the way. Um, a big theme is this idea of national politics or national issues versus local issues. Um, you're writing on Sam Yorty, who is the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, fits this theme so well. Um, teach our listeners about who Yorty was and why he was important in the 1960s. Well, what is a mayor, right? What, what is a mayor? It, does a mayor matter? Uh, in the olden days, the mayor, you know, up until 1936, uh, the way America worked in peacetime was the mayors and the states, city, municipal, county, state, plussed up to a larger presence in the U.S. economy than the federal government in peacetime. That had shifted, right? Washington suddenly became bigger than towns and states. So there was trouble in the cities. African-Americans weren't gaining ground, a very serious problem. Television came to the cities. African-Americans, poor people, disadvantaged people could see that other people were gaining ground. They were angry. Let's, let's start with that. Mm -hmm. um, there are many other problems. Uh, Yorty was the mayor of Los Angeles. And he had ideas, because he was supposed to be in charge of Los Angeles, on how to fix that. He also applied for federal grants when the Great Society came along, which was Johnson. And while, and the federal, uh, the story that I tell here is, uh, it's, it's, it, it's like payroll protection or any other grant or any other bid you place with the government. It's an awful lot of paper, an awful lot of weight, an awful lot of slippage between what you're promised and what you get. And slippage is a sign of corruption, right? Mm -hmm. When it's like a used car dealer. Um, he wasn't getting, he had people lined up to hire. He intended to hire youth over the summer and have them work in the library and, I don't know, um, one of the jobs he was going to have was to print out library cards for people. You know, make work for high schoolers to give them a sense of reading in future. It's not a terrible idea. But the money just didn't come because the bureaucrat in charge of Yorty it didn't favor Yorty, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, what, it was very hot that summer in Los Angeles, and there was the terrible Watts riot, which we began with as the riot very recently, with a man you know, being dragged away calling for his mother, just, just like that. And it, people died in Watts, property was destroyed, African-American and uh, everyone's property in, in shops. There was looting. It was one of the bigger riots 
Um, and part of it was that the mayor, Yorty, who was a cantankerous fellow, sort of like a, a bantamweight, a bantam rooster, you know, pugnacious guy, veteran, was furious because he ran a city that was growing faster than the U.S., and yet the U.S. government had put him in a position where the very catastrophe he had sought to avoid, to prevent a, a riot and misery and death, had been visited upon him by this interaction with the federal government, as he saw it. And, and simultaneous to this, uh, Martin Luther King's very legitimate and powerful movement a peaceful effort was going on sim simultaneous. So you had this incredible contrast between that, which, you know, we find the, the similarities to the last three or four years. That's part of what made us so excited about your book. Right. So people are listening to MLK on television, which they hadn't been able to before, so seeing him on television. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, L.A. was a difficult city with a famously, is anyone here from L.A.? It, a famously difficult police force, tough, uh, undertrained. Uh, but it was, it was a story, and this happened to a lot of the mayors. In this book, there's a chapter called The Revolt of the Mayors. It was a story of the problem, jurisdictional gaps, jurisdictional lacunae, that nobody's in charge when everyone's in charge uh, of a market, of regulating a market, or of regulating a town. And what the message I was trying to convey was probably these towns would have fared better and their people would have fared better had they been left alone more mm -hmm. rather than managed by the war and poverty. Sure. Uh, in your book, each chapter you show where guns were as a percentage of GDP and where butter was um, to kind of take us back to our, in my case, my economics lessons in college at, at Whitman. Um, butter was far bigger than the guns when it came to the jobs early on. Um, the community action agencies of 1965 created 125,000 jobs, which was far more soldiers than we had in Vietnam at that time, okay, at that moment. Um, not later, but at that moment. Why is this often missed in historical dialogues? People don't say, oh, by the way, you know, we ended up with a half million American men in Vietnam. But earlier on, we were throwing more money at jobs in cities in America than we were in Vietnam. When I, yes, when I was writing this book, I made charts in the back so I could tell the stories in the book. And it, it, the truism, like if you interviewed, I don't know, a French currency investor uh, in that period, they would say, that war in Vietnam is very expensive. Guns, that's what the gun stands for. It, the butter at home, the social programs matter less. Uh, the U.S. is overspending on the war. But you can see the chart in the back. Butter spending grew and grew. And pretty early, I believe it was 1971, butter spending outdoes guns. And that's where we've been ever since. It's kind of a fallacy to assume trouble happened and the great society failed because we, the US ha didn't have enough cash due to, us, due to Vietnam and the ramp up there. And my impression is um, the, uh, the Vietnam War is almost, it, it's close, this is so uh, heterodox to say, almost not so relevant. It really wasn't about the Vietnam War, except insofar as Lyndon Johnson felt bad to see young men dying, which they were on his watch by the end of his term. Uh, the problem was at home, we built ourselves a fantasy that we could afford a social democracy and that that would also address our, our troubles. Mm. Um, back to this idea of national versus local, states mattered in the history of our country. Um, and I'll quote from your book here, at the dedication of the Arizona State Stone at the Washington Monument in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge had made a point of insisting that the nation can be inviolate as it insists as much as Arizona is inviolate. It's a very odd sentence to our ears. Coolidge would talk about the United States in plural. The United States are. Why would he do that? Because he was interested in the states. 
That's older America, the state, right? Europe are. Well, some UK people say that when they get going, right? Mm. The, the EU are. But, but uh, are, uh, and what he was saying is the United States, our, our government, is our inviolate only insofar as the autonomy of Arizona is inviolate. Um, the only sad thing about the great society is one criticizes so much. So uh, I like to praise. And the anti-great society uh, president, in a way, the opposite, is Calvin Coolidge back in the 20s, whose centennial is approaching. Mm. So if you ever want to have a seat clearly expressed uh, what's right about some US traditions and what's wrong about editing them, you go to Coolidge. He had a homiletic fashion of speaking. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a trained clergyman, but he'd heard enough sermons that you can hear it in his speeches. Short sentences cut right through to the problem or the value. And he understood very well, um, the United States are inviolate, are strong, only insofar as this single state is strong. He also gave a, a landmark speech called Have Faith in Massachusetts, by which he meant have faith in your state. Uh, very interesting. This seems sort of otherworldly to us. I don't know, like a fax machine, but but it was very real and warrants revisit. So, sounds like how Glenn Youngkin got elected governor in Virginia. Yeah, the the, the, the mama bears. It, it's the person that's closest to the people. The the government that's closest to the people is highly more likely to know what's best for that place than than someone that is in Washington, D.C. And we're really still dealing with this today because, I mean, the idea of what does the state get to decide versus the federal program. And we've had some large, you know, precedent-breaking court, Supreme Court cases that have effectively handed it back down to the state in kind of Coolidge's ilk. Uh, absolutely. And in this book later, you, you, Ronald Reagan starts out as a has-been PR man. And he evolves and, of course, becomes governor of California. And one of the problems he had there was he realized there were law firms suing him in class actions, like, say, suing the state about some reform he would undertake to save money because he did have budgetary constraints by the statute and constitution of California about, uh, about deficits. And he realized the lawyers who were suing his pro programs to save money were paid for by the federal government. Mm. And that bugged him, naturally. Wait a minute, you're, you're not only telling us not to become insolvent or go bankrupt, you're also telling us we can't manage ourselves to do what you ask us to do. And that, that gubernatorial period of Reagan, you could learn a lot about um, not just president, the Reagan presidency, but also about the revolt against greater government that, that came out in the 80s by studying what frustrations were confronted by governors like Reagan in the 60s and 70s. If, if you haven't already picked it up here with our audience, the, the, the analogous 60s and 70s to our current circumstances, uh, if you've been reading our stuff, we've been harping a lot about guns and butter. And uh, so coming out of the Watts uh, riots, and boy, as a, about a seven or eight-year-old kid, I remember watching that on TV and thinking, wow, I mean, these people are angry. It says, uh, you, quoting your book, black and white youth employment had run about the same until the middle of the 1950s, 8 to 11 percent. When Congress raised the federal minimum wage by a third in 1956, unemployment rose far higher among black teenagers than among whites to 25%. Explain what Milton Friedman's view on this was at the time and the policies that he felt would actually help. Uh, I don't remember what Milton said, but I do remember what he would say. <laughs> and what he would say is minimum wage is bad for those who are undertrained. Why? If you're paying a higher price for something, you want more guaranteed the worker can do the work now. Mm. You want someone, I hate this phrase as an employer, but to hit the ground running. I hate it. But anyway, you want someone who can hit the ground running as opposed to someone you're going to waste time training who might not even work out. So that's what upward pressure on wages does to employers. Mm. They pick more carefully and more boringly. We, we, we have hiring signs everywhere in Phoenix. Every, every business that you interact with is, is begging people to come to work at, you know, ab well above the minimum right, wage. Right. But, well, that's the second point. It's, it, it's often behind the, the minimum wage may not matter some of the time. But what it did for African Americans, since they didn't have the degrees or particularly the vocational training they needed for that kind of job, 
they would not get hired. And that's, that happened um, with minimum wages in the period we're discussing Great Society, but it also happened under Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt um, because of other laws that, again, put upward pressure on wages, uh, particularly in construction. So um, that setting aside you, you know, social challenges that a group might face, we made it tougher for African Americans to break into the working and middle class by our minimum wage laws, no question. Right to work becomes the big push uh, uh, back to big government, big union politics. Quote, General Electric's renegade computer department was in Phoenix. The companies knew that opening in a right to work state incurred the wrath of the union men, unquote. People and companies left California and other heavy-handed states to come here. How do you parallel this with the movement we're seeing to a state like Arizona today when comparing income tax rates and regulations? Well, again, like I didn't go to write a book about unions, but this Great Society book is a lot about unions. So what we're talking about is right to work. Does everyone know what that is? Which we're yeah, we're a right to work state here. You're a right to work state here. Always but, have been. Okay, well, but. The way it was, was there was the Wagner Act from the New Deal, and it made every state more or less a non-right-to-work state, a closed and heavily unionized state where you had to join the union even before you applied for the job to be even considered. That's a true closed shop. That's what our grandparents used to talk about. And they, they have their own lexicon, right, which is very daunting. It's sort of like the Fed. You can't talk union. You can't talk Fed. You can't question, right? So there's that lexicon, union lexicon. And then uh, a sort of labor miracle happened. Thank you, Robert Taft. And we got a law called Taft-Hartley after World War II. By the way, Harry Truman vetoed it, but his, there, his veto was overridden. And Taft-Hartley said, if a state wants to opt out, it can opt out of the tougher union strictures. That's right to work. And um, you want to thank Everett Dirksen of Illinois, a liberal, uh, in, uh, for uh, defending the right to work option. And that led to you, you gentlemen and ladies, compare countries all the time, a natural experiment. There were right to work states and there were more unionized states, just like there's Luxembourg and there's Switzerland, and each has an advantage and a disadvantage, right? And you're comparing in real time every second. That's what happened in the US. And we discovered, and there's some charts in the book on this, over the longer term, the non-right-to-work states didn't do as well. One of my characters in the book says, grass will grow in Pittsfield, by which he means factories will fall apart. If we, if we don't have freer labor, grass did grow in Pittsfield. The labor went here, and the companies went here, of course, first. And, and Billy Joel sang a song called Allentown. Allentown, right. And, and, but, but the point was, um, by some sort of legislative accident, and I would say miracle, President Johnson, who was a Democrat, which is the party that doesn't like right to work up to now, was, was planning to get that ended. That, that opt-out, right? That opt-out. Uh, and he just never got to it. That was because of the Vietnam situation, because it distracted him. The witch, as he called Vietnam, distracted him from the good lady, which was what, was what he wanted to do at home. And that enabled the right-to-work experiment, the natural experiment among states, to continue and give us extremely strong, powerful data, which you'll see at the back of the book. You, you talk about the traitorous eight and the creation of what we know, uh, uh, we now know as Intel. H how much of the boom of Silicon Valley was actually a rebuttal to the lethargic structure of big business and cumbersome wage, nego wage negotiations of the 1960s? I, I think it was a rebuttal. What it was was the military-industrial complex, the traitorous eight. These are the, the men who worked in the military-industrial complex and then left it as gifted children at Fairchild. And then it's a well-known story. I recommend the books of Leslie Berlin and then founded uh, Intel and a lot of other companies. It, children who weren't loyal to their company and left and wandered off and created these miraculous, interesting new 
companies. So I think it wasn't a rebellion against unionism, but I do. Th uh, but I think it was a rebellion against parents and military-industrial complex. Remember, though, if you know, you rebel against your parent, and then you end up uh, being that parent, just a different version. A lot, a lot of a lot of what the military-industrial complex did was educate these men to the point where they were able to work, you know, Gordon Moore to write to write uh, the theory and philosophy of the chip. Mm. So eminent domain coupled with big government was a bulldozer waiting to be put into gear, is what I took away from your book. You explained that this was destroying black communities under the heading of progress and revitalization. Uh, the Supreme Court blessed this, uh, since I like talking my own book. Another Whitman College alum, Justice William O. Douglas, I'm quoting from your book, Justin William O. Douglas stretched the old concept of imminent domain like a rubber band. Public welfare, Douglas wrote, equating public welfare with public use should be broad and inclusive, end quote. Isn't this just a fight between private property ownership as a representative for capitalism, uh, kind of in, the, in a Locke, John Locke kind of view of the world, versus government programs as a representative for socialism? I don't think the socialists know they're being socialists, but the result tends to be socialistic and take, take us much closer. <laughs> well, what, what happened with urban renewal, and it's, that some people called it um, the same thing as Negro removal, which it was. Mm. And when there was a riot after Watts, of course, there was the famous and tragic riot in Detroit. And one of the reporters said, all these people disappeared when we took down the main thoroughfare where they used to live in shop. They disappeared for a long time. They came back that night in Detroit uh, to riot. That is, it was a terrible thing we did with urban renewal. And anyone who works in Europe knows, uh, seen urban renewal in Europe as well. We bulldozed over the local in the name of a federal project mm -hmm. that didn't necessarily serve the locals. It was, it was these, this federal project that was designed to serve. So this is a story of well-intentioned people trying to help people they love, at least in theory, and hurting them instead. That's the, the great society. Eminent, um, eminent domain, of course, is when a government uh, just grabs land um, on a military pretext, okay, it's in the Constitution, just compensation, um, or on a build a school, all right, uh, but of course it expanded, so now if you want to develop your own mall, you can just claim the other mall that's already there is blighted, mm -hmm. famous more recent cases such as Kilo, and uh, that's the rubber band stretching that comes from Douglas. He didn't care, he was a very brilliant jurist, he could write anything the uh, Whitman College alum, but he, he didn't, he, he, if you try and figure out, a, it's hard to find a consistency to his jurisprudence. So I want to stay on this idea of housing. Um, as, you, as many of the audience attendees know and our investors know, we, we own home builders. And I think the social, I'll call it the social and moral fabric of housing comes up in your book. Um, you write about the truth uh, that was well known in public housing. I'm quoting Father Kohler of St. Louis from your book. Um, who was an advocate for really home ownership? He says, "Quote: Homeowners are not home burners." To your point about riots, Kohler said, uh, "You go on to write in your book, and home ownership in the United States was still rising by the end of the decade of the '60s. 63% of families would own their own home, up from 55% when urban renewal had first gotten under its way." End quote. So, I mean, just think: the government is bulldozing homes, putting in large public projects. And yet, the free market is still saying, hey, we don't want to be in a, in a big building. We want to own our own property, our own home. Yes. You think of it in the verbs they used. Again, the lexicon gives it all away. They talk about housing. Who houses whom? Does that need to be a transitive verb? I mean, I'll house myself. I'll build myself my house. My home is my castle. It, it, people don't want something done to them, even if it's housing, except maybe in a war, if they're refugees in a strange land starving, they want shelter, okay. But permanent housing uh, doesn't work out. And uh, one of the philosophers you're gonna get to, I think, Hardin, mm -hmm. he talks about that too, but I'll wait to, if, you're for, if you wanna get to that yeah. question. Gold was becoming an increasing problem in the Bretton Woods system. The US paid gold at $35. You point out that the, the James Bond movie, Goldfinger, came out in 1964. <laughs> I love gold. That's from more recent version. Yeah, yeah that's it. That, awesome power. Sorry that, about but, that. But that's a play on, on you know, Goldfinger, let's face it. Yeah. The government was so stuck to not devaluing the dollar 
They, they went looking for gold at 35, but really never found it. Couldn't they have found more gold by just devaluing the dollar, thus causing more incentive for companies to find the metal? Yeah, that's one way. I mean, there's a wonderful book by a light. You know, all books are, are, are on the shoulders of somebody else's book. Mm. James Ledbetter's book about gold. You might not agree with the conclusions, but... Uh, they kind of figured, well, if we want to stand the gold standard, we need more supply. And they sent all these scientists to hunt for gold, like in ocean water. Uh, I mean, a lot of strange Did they go to the animals. They just, yeah, right, exactly. Um, but the. I, I personally think the essential problem was not the gold standard because you don't need that much gold if you have a lot of faith, right? People, the other country doesn't come and withdraw the gold as on the gold standard if it thinks that the U.S. is strong. What happens when, when there's a confidence crisis, though, is that gold gets taken out. And what amused me very much, those of you who like uh, data points and rely on certain data points every morning is the U.S. gold reserves and um, how much gold we had basically was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the ratio essentially to make it primitive of the amount of gold the government had relative to the amount of money outstanding. That, that was regulated by statute. And as we got closer to a dangerous ratio of 25% or 20%, the government ended that that promise, and the Wall Street Journal lined where the percentage was, which people traded currency on, went away. It just went away from one week to the next. It said, for a few weeks, it said dot, dot, dot. And then even the very metric was no longer listed. And you always want to ask yourself when a metric is shifted, is, uh, is this because a better metric that catches value better than the old metric? Is that why? Um, or is, is there an action of hiding in this decision to dispense with a metric that was sort of part of the dashboard um, for, for many economic drivers? They just got rid of the metric. And then, of course, they, they our government, through President Nixon, who's posited as a great society figure as well in this book, got rid of the gold standard, of course, in August 1971. And I remember that because my grandfather was a jeweler. He had a jewelry manufacturing, and he would write down the price of gold once it was free, you know, from the mid-'70s, every day on an in, in kind of an index card with checked boxes. So it was filled with numbers. And it, the gold price went up so high um, that if you hadn't hedged and you had a lot of orders, you couldn't afford to deliver on your contracts all the jewelry that you had committed to make. Um, and what a predicament. What a predicament. Uh, and that was sort of the aftermath of great society. Britain had greatly expanded their national programs post-World War II in a spend-heavy set of labor governments. Britain and the U.S. found themselves in a twin crisis. Expensive currencies and the government largesse unwilling to pull back. Boy, does that sound familiar. Yeah. Uh, having two large countries like this producing such large spending... Couldn't this be directly attributed to the inflationary pr pressures, which were only speeding up? We've got the Federal Reserve Chairman, the only person in this situation currently with the job of trying to fight against that, while the government just continues to spend like drunken sailors on leave. Well, you know, um, basically Congress abdicates then and now, and the executive, and they say, oh, the Fed will fix this. Someone like Chairman Volcker will come along, be nasty, and he'll take the interest rate up to... 20%. If you remember, uh, if you go back and look what interest rate people paid to buy a home in the mid-80s, it was over 10, right? 13.5 um, 13, right. on a state buy-down. Right, right. So you think that, boomers, that's 1.5. We're not that old. We were sort of youth <laughs> observing. 1.5 fewer bedrooms in your house. Think of it that way. Or 1.5... You know, 30% less nice automobile. All, it just cut into what you could acquire, that was the problem. And we have that problem. There are two ways to deal with it's too much money chasing too few goods. So you can cut the money or you can uh, encourage the goods, uh, particularly uh, the supply of goods. And that's what we failed to do. So if you go back, I think John Cochran's been writing about this in the journal. I know Larry Kudlow has said it. Um, I said it in an article with Congressman French Hill, one of my favorite congressmen from Arkansas. If you have um, 
a, a tax change that enables business to fare better and to play around and come up with new ideas, new products that do um, entail productivity gains, then you will have less inflation because there'll be more goods and services to absorb the too much money. It's as simple as that. It's outside Keynesian think, which says spend. It's very different. Um, and even that lexicon is hard to to navigate when you're talking to a Keynesian economist. I think I almost heard you say, if you don't let people drill oil, the price is going to go up a lot. Right, that too. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's. Uh, but in particular, to for firms, we talked about entrepreneurs at the beginning to find ways to productivity gains. You will absorb the excess money. So uh, Malthusian thinkers became very popular in the 1960s. Um, Garrett Hardin, who you talk about. Uh, I have a fellow fraternity brother of mine uh, who we went to college with. I think it was his nephew, oddly enough. So again, the, your book is just like, you know, it has so many touches to where I live. Or, Old or, home week. Yeah. Um, he, he, uh, so he, he coined the term the tragedy of the commons is what he's known for. Depletion is the theme of his thinking. He also peddled abortion out of the idea that we'll never have enough, so we need to abort these children because we're going to deplete everything. Um, the second Malthusian you write about is Paul Ehrlich, which, if you're not aware, uh, he wrote The Population Bomb in the 1970s. Um, the ideas of government-funded birth control and the funding of organizations like Pan Planned Parenthood began with this thinking in the 1960s. Today, we have an abundance of goods um, that is really unparalleled in the history of the world. Why is it that they've been wrong, and yet they're still credible? They appeal to the, the fear part of the human brain. They appeal to the fear, right? Okay. It's it's sort of it, it has it is of a piece um, with we don't have to debate whether uh, man is causing global warming but the fear that goes with it people tend to tend to uh, fall into fear uh, their their lizard brain overtakes their logic brain. Charlie Munger says that use some of that money to just build a seawall. Build a sea, uh, yeah. right? Well, you don't but you don't have to. So what happened in that period, though, if you go back and read it, they, they uh, proposed a diaper tax. Let's see. All kinds they, of weird they stuff. They proposed yeah. some really weird stuff. And the question is, should not families have the autonomy to decide how many children they're going to have? And here, um, Ehrlich and... Um, the Ehrlich and Hardin were, were particularly Ehrlich, were, were saying, no, we need a mass control. It was very big brothery. Uh, and as you know, the economist Julian Simon fought with Ehrlich, and there's a nice book about that uh, by Sabin of Yale. Anyway, but, what, but Hardin is more interesting. The, I almost called the book The Tragedy of the Commons, um, because the tragedy of the commons, as Hardin described it, is familiar to us, and it's the essential problem you share a grazing area. Everyone sends his sheep to graze. The sheep graze away the grass, and everyone's sheep starve. And so, therefore, we must have a shepherd to control the commons and allow grazing from only 10 to 12 and 4 to 6 and, and get a seeding fund and reseed or whatever or migrate from area to area to spare some grass. That's the hardened response, which is, management and, of course, in, in this instance, on a national level. But I think, and that now some economists have won some Nobel Prizes for, for similar thinking. I think they're right. The, the tragedy of the commons is weak property rights slash community. If we, it doesn't have to be a big management from on high. It could be a local brotherhood of sheep owners. Um, it could be property because if someone owns the commons, he will and, and derives revenue from the grazing or or rent, he will guard the commons and make sure it's not overgrazed. Same argument, by the way, for the ocean. You know, uh, tra uh, if it's no one's, it's garbage. Same argument for courtyards and public housing. And I describe one in this book. If, the, if no one owns a courtyard, the garbage is there. Mm. No one, same for corners of airports. Uh, and uh, you can learn a lot about trust in communities. Sometimes it helps for the community to be homogeneous. Look at Scandinavia on a good day, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you know, everyone all picks up his other his friend's garbage. Um, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it, it's a complex problem, but at 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 heart is is someone a stakeholder in this commons? Mm, which gets gets back to that idea of housing, because when you're a house when you own how, a house, you're a stakeholder. So let me let me jump because I want to. This is 
really, this is kind of a brief story, but I just want you to mention it. Um, my new favorite superhero is Catwoman. I just want you to know that, um, due to your book. Uh, you tell a very intriguing story about Eartha Kitt, who played Catwoman, alongside another Whitman College, and my dad wants me to mention a Beta Theta Pi member, Adam West, as Batman. Uh, tell our listeners quickly about that brief story about Eartha Kitt with President Johnson. Well, she goes to the White House as part of a goodwill initiative, right? Yes, and, with, with other women, kind of women doers, I think. And was she the gets theme. up to talk, and I'm just trying to remember. Oh, she, I, yeah, exactly what she said. I'm looking at. Uh, she complains loudly, and uh, she says they're going. You know, the the Johnson administration is doing all these things for African Americans, and, and she's she, an African American actress. She's African American, and she says, "You know why you're doing this? Because they're going to be snatched off from their mothers to be shot in Vietnam, which is true enough, right? Uh, because the soldiers and the first lieutenants, those were the ones who who were, took a lot of the ca- casualties." And she said, give us a free ticket not to try for better things. And she made Lady, don't give us just welfare, said Eartha Kitt, Catwoman. Mm-hmm. And, and Lady Bird uh, almost cried because it was a nice luncheon. And Mrs. Johnson was, of course, upset that her guest was belligerent. And she, <laughs> Eartha Kitt was basically ex- escorted away from the White House. Yeah, towards their, their little very... Um, what we needed was for Bubba to start Bubba Gump Shrimp. Yeah. And their little very curated existence of what they thought the Great Society was doing. The White House is a bubble, right? And Eartha Kitt burst it. Creole shrimp. The high labor costs of American workers in the 1960s was going to force the big three automakers to cut staff. You've already hinted at about this topic. And make cars more economically. Our government provided support to layoffs uh, and gave help financially, but it can't fix the human problem. You wrote, quote, idling of vulnerable workers was something Richard Nixon was getting at in his speeches. Government could do a lot for a worker, Nixon said, but it couldn't provide him dignity. Is this still an unsolved problem in government programs? Uh, Completely. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, um, people idled during COVID and they come out of it kind of blinking in the light, particularly younger people who haven't ex- had experience in the workforce, for whom this is a large percentage of their life. For us older people, it's 160th of our life, COVID, or, well, 260ths, right? Um, for them, it's a large share of their life being idle, doing whatever they do, playing video games um, at home, and they have lost the sense of the joy of work and the dignity of work. And we all have, um, you know, know about this. And to lure them back and say it's fun, it's fun to work hard. And also, by the way, you could you could improve your wage over time. We have to spell that out, and they don't want to hear it from us. They have to find that themselves. We don't want to play big brother to younger people who are kind of um, disaffected, right? Discouraged workers in the technical term. Um, It's like that. It's a serious problem we have now uh, among younger people. They don't see the dignity in work, so so or certain kinds of work often, and they can't enjoy it. Therefore, yeah. So let's let's open it up for questions from the audience. Let's see. We have we have. uh, I'll call this mic one and mic two over here. So if anyone would like to step up and ask a question, I'm going to ask a question. If anyone's thinking about one, real quick. you do talk about the Fed. You talk about William uh, McChesney Martin, who is one of the most famous Fed governors of all time. He, he is poetically put together the line of the punch bowl, uh, speaking to the New York bankers, the Waldorf Astoria. I think it was in the late 50s, uh, I want to say. And then you also talk about Arthur Burns. Um, inflation was becoming the hard facts of life in the early 1970s. The Fed under Arthur Burns reads kind of like a sycophant for the Nixon administration, where he was more interested in getting time with Nixon than he was focusing on really Fed policy. Um, While Jay Powell and the governors are now trying to fight that fight here in the now, did it help to have the former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, join the administration and tell everyone, kind of like like Kevin Bacon in Animal House, all is well, well. all is well, as chaos is breaking out uh, in that scene. Um, it seems very influential in our mind to have a former Fed chair telling people that this spending is not going to cause inflation while sitting in the Treasury. Do you, do you think that was highly influential, or, or do you not look at Janet Yellen and the relationship of Jay Powell similar to kind of the unwillingness to deal with the early 1970s? 
Well, it's an unwillingness of Congress and the executive, right? Mm. And so the, and then you have the Fed kind of mesmerizing. It really is true, the Wizard of Oz, uh, that's the role the Fed has, you know. And then there's the scene in the film, the Wizard of Oz uh, is unmasked because he's just a man behind a curtain. Mm. It, so I, I don't, you know, you see the, the Fed, whoever it is, doing that all the time. But uh, the responsibility here, by the way, as with abortion, is with Congress, too. Uh, you can't lay it all on the Supreme Court or the Fed. You can ask society, you can ask religion, you can ask, right? But it's not all the Fed's fault what we've done. Had Congress had more growth-oriented laws earlier and cut the capital gains earlier than night rate, earlier than 78, we might have had not had to have those high interest rates. Now, had we more growth-oriented and less, um, less extravagant spending policy, we might not have to reassure and shove wizards in front of the public and say, calm the people, wizard, uh, which is what we have. What's interesting to me is uh, the bind Arthur Burns was in. Um, he's the wizard in my book. Uh, McChesney Martin, William McChesney Martin, did not take the punch bowl away, notwithstanding his own truism, fast enough, and he realized it. It's a tragedy for William Martin. And then uh, Burns thought he would take the punch bowl away, but he wanted to be the president's advisor. And the president didn't want Burns to raise interest rates prior to an election, because then the president would lose re-election. And that agony of vanity, power is very hard to give up. Once you're Fed chairman, you want to stay there. Once you're president, you want to stay there. Caused Burns to betray his own record and intellectual instincts. And I try to chart that minute by minute. The minute you, you, uh, you, know, you betray your principles and your soul, it's a real Faust story, too, that of Burns. We'll go over here to Mike One. Do you want to uh, mention your name and, and tell them where you're from? Uh, Bill Way from here in Phoenix. I'm not sure I can pull out an Animal House uh, reference, but I did read an article recently, and it talked about some of the architects of the Great Revolution, or the Great Society. Um, not just uh, Johnson and Kennedy, but uh, the Moynihan's, uh, Sergeant Shriver, that they failed to look at the lessons of the 1930s when they conducted and created their own uh, policies. And it also says we're failing now to look back at the 60s when we're creating and architecting our current policy. And I wonder what you would say we're missing or that the current politicians should look back in the 60s when trying to construct with all the great goals and aspirations that were there and we share uh, in the 60s, but perhaps learn the lessons of what didn't work in the 60s and we ought to do it differently. Well, it, it, my, thank you. Yeah, um, that's why the, the adage at the beginning of this book is nothing is new, it's just forgotten, it, which um, a lot of people have said one is Chanel, the clothing designer, in terms of style, and another is uh, Marie Antoinette. Nothing is new. It is, so we've forgotten what happened in the 60s, and, and uh, generally lawmakers don't, don't try to remind us of the 60s because the outcomes were so subpar. So they go back to the New Deal when the outcomes were subpar, but it's so far back nobody really even knows how to look that up. Uh, the problem essentially was identified um, by Margaret Thatcher, actually. She said, there is no society. There are only individuals and families. And if you do something for society, it's very likely it, it will slip up. If you do something that individuals like besides buy them off, uh, that's interesting, too. Because the impetus for prosperity does come from the individual and behind that, may, the family may be a community, but mainly the individual. And, and the Great Society neglected the individual, as did the New Deal. Amity, this has been just a ton of fun. We really thank you for doing this. Um, uh, this, this is our, our first live podcast, and I can say that uh, no one's died or fell over, and so it's just been wonderful. I want to thank Bill. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, we are, I want to say, like 26 or 27 uh, podcast episodes in, and we've had a couple with you, and I I implore you to write another book because we like doing this with you. So, um, and also, lastly, I want to thank everybody here in the crowd today, all the attendees this Meet Investor Oasis for doing this. Thank you so much, guys.
Uh, and also, um, just, just so everybody knows, you have a copy of Amity's book in the bag you received when you entered. Um, I would highly recommend you get a copy so you can go back home and, and show her that, uh, show, it, show everyone that you met one of the smartest people of all time. Um, let's see, for, for the podcast listeners, you should go buy a copy of Amity's book to understand when government spending on both sides of the aisle, coupled with real economic and social problems, can spin out of control. Um, I want to thank uh, everyone here again. I also want to thank um, you know, our team here that's done this. And uh, for our, our, our live audience and our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.